Good morning. I'd like to start a little different this morning. We're going to uh, say some scripture out loud together. It's Isaiah chapter 44, uh, verses 6 through 8. So that should appear here on the overhead. And then I would like us to read that out loud so it will appear, right? It's in the middle screen. I never look behind me. So what I'd like us to do is to read this out loud uh, together. Here we go. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. This is a section of scripture that screams sovereignty. It talks about the idea that God is sovereign. Now, using a really super simplistic definition of sovereignty, I would simply say God is in control. But if I want to get even simpler than that, I would say God is just really big. We serve a big, big God. To me, that's sovereignty. We talk about sovereignty a lot. We may not use that term uh, when it comes to God, but uh, we talk about this concept more than I think we realize. Oftentimes, on a weekend like Fourth of July, uh, those of us who are biblically knowledgeable and, and put that into our country's history will say, you know what? It was God's hand that started this nation, right? He divinely intervened. He did miraculous things to get our nation going. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty is, is the idea that God governs the affairs of people. It's hard to wrap our minds around a concept like sovereignty because we have to acknowledge in that God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-present, he's all-wise, and he is truly 100% in control. And that's a hard concept because as Dave joked about, we have to admit we are not in control most of the time. Amen? We usually are out of control. So when we start talking about this God who is sovereign, he's in control, he's all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, it's just a hard concept to wrap our minds around because it's so foreign to who we are. Amen? It's not at all like who we are. But God is not a man, right? Right? He is God. And so he is sovereign. Um, This reading this morning from Isaiah states that God is better than other gods. Did you get that in it? And if you think that there are multiple gods and multiple religions, sovereignty falls apart. I mean, who's in control, right? But if there's one true God, one true religion, then sovereignty makes a whole bunch of sense. So I want to begin this morning with a little exercise. I'm going to address the question, basically, that goes like this. Why is our God, when I say our God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, better than other gods? Now, this is all biblically based. So if you don't believe the Bible, you won't believe what I'm about to say. But if you believe the Bible, you're going to resonate with what I'm about to share with you this morning. Why is our God... 
God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one better than other gods. Let me go through a list for you here uh, this morning. And here's what I want you to do with this list as I I begin to articulate it to you. I, I want it to be something that causes you to see God as big. Not just a list of neat things about the Lord, but I want you to use this as a worship moment as a way to hang on the sovereignty of God onto some concepts that are pretty tangible. So as I go through this morning, uh, uh, this list, here's what I want to be the outcome. You get done saying, uh, with, with this list with me, and you go, okay, God is big, he is indeed sovereign, and I worship you. So listen to these uh, thoughts about why I worship the Lord. Well, he is before all things. Why do we worship our Lord? He is before all things. God declares that in his word. Um, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the beginning and end of all things. Why do we worship God as sovereign? He's before all things. Why do we worship God as sovereign? He created all things. I love how the Bible starts. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is our creator. He is the one who put us on this planet. Therefore, he is sovereign over us. Not only did he create all things, but he upholds all things. He upholds all things. Um, if God removed himself from us, we would no longer exist. If God took his presence away from us, we would cease to be. He upholds all things. He sustains all things. He is above all things. He is over all and through all and in all. He knows all things. Before a word is on your tongue, he knows it already. To me, that's a scary concept because I should therefore control my tongue a bit better, right? Because God knows what I'm about to say before I even say it. He's this knowing God. Um, He can do all things. Nothing is impossible with God. He accomplishes all things. The Lord Almighty has sworn, as surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, it will stand. He accomplishes all things. He rules over all things. Yours, Lord, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the majesty, and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. He rules all things. He is in control of all things. God works for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. God controls all things. So I've just given you a list here that begins to get at sovereignty, right? This is what sovereignty means. If you, biblically speaking, is the listing I just went through. Uh, looking sovereignty up on, on uh, you know, things like Wikipedia, Wikipedia, which I know is a great source, and, and some of these public uh, dictionaries, I, I came upon one definition of sovereignty that I kind of liked. I'm going to read this to you. It goes like this. The sovereignty of God means that he has total control of all things, past, present, and future. Nothing happens that is out of his knowledge and control. All things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purposes and through his perfect will and timing. He is the only absolute and omnipotent ruler of the universe and is sovereign in creation, providence, and redemption. Tozer said this in the knowledge 
of the holy as he talked about sovereignty. God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. The reasons are these. Were there even one datum of knowledge, however small, unknown to God, his rule would break down at that point. To be Lord over all creation, he must possess all knowledge. And were God lacking one infinitesimal modicum of power, that lack would end his reign and undo his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else, and God would be a limited ruler, and hence not sovereign. Furthermore, his sovereignty requires that he be absolutely free, which means simply that he must be free to do whatever he wills, to do anywhere at any time, to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he must be less than sovereign. This is a lot of information I just gave you. Here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to take a breath, and I want you to consider with me this question. If all this accurately describes God, which I believe in all my heart it does, if all this accurately describes God, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to your faith? What does it mean to your certainty and trust of God? What does it mean when you're in trouble? What does it mean when you look at world events? What does it mean when you think about God and who he is? It should drastically change your perspective and your faith. If you truly understand the sovereignty of God, it changes how you view your faith. Amen? Because he truly is big enough. He truly is able enough. He truly is overall. He truly is in control. I see an awful lot of people fearful and fretful in their faith. And I'm going, sure, we face fearful, fretful times, but I serve an all-encompassing, all-powerful, all-sufficient God. Amen? And that should produce in us this surety and faith that conquers, that's able, that's overcoming, right? Am I right or not? When you are fearful of circumstances, it is because you are seeing God as too little. When circumstances begin to loom large and dominate your thinking, it's because God is looming too small. He's not big enough. When you begin to really understand the sovereignty of God, everything else takes on its proper place, its proper order in things. Sometimes I think we, we worry and fret too much because our view of God is way, 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 way too small. Sovereignty like this is how our God longs for us to see him. A couple weeks ago, I, I talked about seeing God with 20-20 vision. You know, God has made a sovereignty known to us. It's an obvious thing in his word. And, and when you begin to understand this concept, you begin to see it all over in the Bible. And what I want to do is spend just a few moments with you talking about how sovereignty has been revealed uh, in, in, in the word of God, the Bible, and also in the way God has presented himself to us. So let me just talk with you for a few moments on, on seeing God's sovereignty with 20-20 vision this morning. How is God's sovereignty seen by us? Well, it's seen through his titles. Sovereignty of God is seen through his titles. I mean, God uses words like advocate, I am, God Almighty, Lord of Lords, Holy One, the God who heals, the God who hears, the God Most High, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who provides, creator, sustainer, judge, rock, faithful one, 
everlasting Father, Most High, King of Kings. He uses these kinds of titles. I tell you what, brothers and sisters in Jesus, these are sovereignty terminology. Are you getting that? These are identification markers for who God is. He's saying, this is who I am. I'm the sovereign one. When you look at other major world religions, a lot of them believe that through many iterations of reincarnation, you become what you're supposed to become, right? Uh, when you look at some world religions, the gods are just a little bit better than the humans, and we're supposed to be attaining that somehow by good works and by, by, by you know, some certain methods. But when you look at our faith, the Christian faith, God says, I'm sovereign. I'm not like you. I'm not like a man. I'm creator. I'm sustainer. I'm big. I'm awful in my holiness. I mean that in a good way. I'm scary in my presence. Moses couldn't see God's holiness. He could only see God's goodness last week. Remember we talked about that? Because God is so sovereign and so big and so large, if we were to look upon him, we would cease to exist. And he basically said to Moses, you want to see my glory? I'm going to show you my goodness. Because that's all you can take. That's sovereignty talk. That's God who is in control talk. That's a big, able, sufficient God kind of talk. So God is seen in his titles. He's also seen through his promises. His sovereignty is seen through his promises. For instance, he's promised to work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's a sovereign God. Sovereignty talk about God is also seen in, in places like Philippians where he says, one day is coming where every knee will bow before me and every tongue will proclaim that I am Lord. That's sovereignty talk. So sovereignty talk is seen through the promises of God. Sovereignty talk is also seen through history. Through history. Uh, I want to talk with you about one example here that just shows how history reveals the sovereignty of God. We're going to look at the Old Testament person, Joseph. Joseph was son of the ancient patriarch, Jacob. And he was... Uh, envied by his brothers, who sold Joseph into slavery. And then Joseph's story is one of misery, when you really read it in, in the context. If you were Joseph, you would think your life sucked. Come on now, we don't say that kind of thing in church very often, but that's what you would think. He's sold by his brothers into slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's household. He's falsely accused of sexual advances against his master's wife. He's thrown in the prison. That stinks. And in prison, you know, it's not the greatest experience. And a couple people end up there in prison with him, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. Uh, they fell out of favor with Pharaoh. They end up in prison. They both have dreams. They, they don't know what these dreams mean. God gives Joseph the ability to interpret the dreams, and he tells them what's going to happen. The baker's going to die. The cupbearer's going to be restored to his position. And he says to the cupbearer, remember me. When you're restored back to your position, because I've been falsely accused and I am unjustly placed into this position. Well, the cupbearer is restored to his position and he promptly forgets all about Joseph until Pharaoh down the road has a dream that no one can interpret. And then he goes, oh, I remember this dude in prison. He told me what was going to happen to me. Maybe he can do that for you, oh, Pharaoh. And then Joseph's brought before Pharaoh and he rightly interprets his dream, right? And then all of a sudden he's elevated to the second uh, in command of all of Egypt. But here's one thing I think we don't see in the story of Joseph very clearly. He got the sovereignty of God. He knew that all this hardship that he has gone through and even being raised to this position of great power in Pharaoh's kingdom was so that he could save the remnant of Israel. He could save these brothers 
who betrayed him. And why can I say that with such a uh, certainty? Because he says so. When his father passes away after the brothers and him have been reconciled and all that kind of stuff, and, and he's been revealed to his brothers. Uh, when, when Jacob passes away, the brothers are now afraid they're gonna get their, you know, justice. And, 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 and Joseph says these words, and these are sovereignty words. He says these words, you intended to harm me. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for my good for the accomplishment of what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph got the sovereignty of God. If you don't get the sovereignty of God, life will overwhelm you. Circumstances will loom larger than they should, and problems will see like that's what life is about. But if you get the sovereignty of God, you look through that thing and you begin to ask God, what are you up to, right? What are you doing in my life? How is this greater than my life? Sovereignty is seen also through fulfilled prophecy. I mean, one-third of the Bible, it's been estimated, is prophetic in its nature. And in Jesus Christ alone, hundreds of prophecies have been fulfilled. Hundreds of prophecies uh, on the first coming of Christ have been fulfilled. This is an amazing study sometimes to look at all the prophetic uh, truths that have been fulfilled in the coming of Messiah and all the future ones that will be fulfilled at the second arrival of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one example of prophecy fulfilled. You have little Israel. She's so unfaithful to God. Unless we judge her, we are too, right? And God said, you're going to be dispersed, but I'm going to call you all back. I'm going to make you once uh, a nation once again. Some 2,000 years after that prophecy is given, 2,000 plus years. Who's reborn? Little Israel. 1948. That just never happens. You don't hear about the Chaldeans anymore. You don't hear about the Amorites anymore. They are no more. Whose nation was reborn? The one God promised would be reborn. The one he prophesied would be reborn, Israel. And we ought to go, wow, this is the sovereign God. What he calls into being happens. What he promises will take place. That's God's sovereignty. Two big questions that arise uh, with sovereignty are as follows, and, and uh, uh, these are ones that tend to trip people up, and I want to talk with these, uh, about these for just a few moments with you. What about human pain? And then what about human responsibility? Because if God is in control... Why is there human pain? If God is in control and totally sovereign, is what we go through just a mockery? Is he predetermining it all anyway? I mean, these are questions that are often raised in association with God's sovereignty. I have a video that I would like you to watch right now, so if you guys would cue that up and show up, please, we're going to watch this. I like this video because it starts getting at some of these uh, nuances of sovereignty and, and the goodness of God. Um, what about human pain? What about suffering? And, and uh, where does that factor into the sovereignty of God? Um, and I want to continue to talk on that with you for just a few moments here um, by using uh, an excerpt from Chip Ingram's book, God as He Longs for You to See Him. He addresses these two questions really well. 
And I want to read to you some of his thoughts on uh, what about human pain, what about human responsibility when it comes to the sovereignty of God. Listen to what he says. Anyone who thinks about God's sovereignty long enough will face two pretty big questions. The first is this. If God is really in control and above all things, sovereign over all history circumstances, why does he allow evil, pain, and suffering? If he can see all the unspeakable things that people are doing to each other, and if he can do something about it, why doesn't he? Why didn't he stop the world suffering before it began? Why didn't God prevent suffering? Because he's created us in his image. The high price tag for a loving relationship among people is freedom. Human freedom means we have the willful opportunity to say yes and to love God, but we also have the willful opportunity to say no and do what is wrong. God thought it was so important to maintain our dignity that he gave us the opportunity to freely love or reject him, knowing that our freedom will result in pain. But he allowed it, knowing before the foundation of the earth that the only remedy for that pain would be Jesus. He would come and die to pay the price to restore this broken relationship. The second question regarding God's sovereignty is about human responsibility. If God is sovereign over all people and events in history, doesn't that make a sham of human responsibility? Is God a cosmic puppeteer who lets us think we're making decisions on our own? Are all our decisions predetermined such that he is pulling the strings and making our choices an illusion? Well, of course not, Chip says. The Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign, but we make decisions of our own free will. We will be rewarded, held accountable, and judged for those decisions. But there's a balance. We don't exactly understand how that works, and people who try to explain it generally fall into one of two major camps, Calvinism or Arminianism. These are named after two 16th century figures of the the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin of France and Jacobus Arminius of Holland. Within these camps, many people take their explanations um, further than Calvin or Arminius would have taken them. Without going into a lesson uh, on these two important figures of church history, I'll simply say that there are extreme views within these two camps that are unbiblical. Some extreme forms of Calvinism, though well-intentioned, guards God's sovereignty uh, so protectively that it virtually eliminates human responsibility. No one who holds this belief would state it that way, but that's how it plays out. It makes God a cosmic puppeteer and denies that we have any real choices. That's unbiblical. At the other end of the spectrum are extreme forms of Arminianism. Also, out of good intention, um, these attempt to guard free will and human responsibility so protectively, it creates a God who's up in heaven biting his nails, hoping everything will work out and waiting for our decisions so we can figure out what to do. Both extremes violate scripture. Are you hearing that? And whenever people talk on this subject matter, and I've heard a lot of talking on this subject matter, way more than I want to, it always goes to these extreme, bizarre positions. And that's just not biblical. Scripture teaches a tension between the two. God is absolutely sovereign. No plan of his can be thwarted, and he is in control of all people, events, and history. But the scripture also teaches that we are free moral agents who make decisions, and those decisions can impact things for eternity. How these truths go together is a mystery. Either extreme will land you in a theological ditch. But what amazes me is that the Apostle Paul, who wrote so much about God's sovereignty, didn't seem to have a problem with this balance. 
In Philippians 1, when he was thinking he might die, Paul said he was certain that his deliverance would occur because of the church's prayers. That's human responsibility. And because of the provision of the Spirit in Christ Jesus, that's sovereignty. In chapter 2, he tells them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That's human responsibility. Because it is God who is working in them, both to will and to desire his good pleasure, both to do his will and to desire his good pleasure. That's sovereignty. Like two telephone poles that hold their wires in tension, at one end you are responsible, and the other, God is sovereign. One brings great comfort, the other great responsibility. I, I like his take on this. We simplify the subject matter, and it's annoying to me. I've had people come to me and give me a selected amount of verses and say, see, God's sovereign. I couldn't agree with you more. I've had other people come and give me selected verses. You see, we are free and we have this, this responsibility to do what is right. I couldn't agree with you more. They're both right. That's God's word. We can't figure it out. But it's intention and it's a revelation and some things we just take at face value and we don't overanalyze it to the point where we're in control. Because when we can subject God's word to our frail little minds, our puny little minds at times, we are diminishing it to something it is not. And I see in this subject matter and these two camps do this all the time to each other. Just saying like it is. People ask me, where do I fall in Calvinism or Indian? I said, I don't fall anywhere. I fall in the Bible, squarely in the Bible. And what it says, and these things are intention. And that's okay. Amen? Are you still, you still love me? I was listening to Isaac this last week, our, our district superintendent, uh, talk a bit. And he was talking a little bit on the bigness of God, the sovereignty of God. And of course, Isaac has this kind of Western cowboy aura around him. You guys, if you know him, know that he's like that a lot. And he was giving us a story about uh, sovereignty. And he said, I think sovereignty is best explained by a, a guy that's just uh, shoeing on my horses. I thought, oh boy, what is this going to be like, you know? Anyway, this horseshoer of Isaac said this when it comes to life in general. He says, my business is not my business. That's his take on life. And what he's saying is God's sovereign, and I think my life's my business, but it's not my business. It's God's business. And if I see my life right, I realize my business is not my business. I have no control. God's in control over me. My business is God's business. I know that's a cowboy theological take on sovereignty. It's not bad, is it? It's not bad at all. My business is not my business. That's a good way of looking at the sovereignty of God because we often think we're in control, and boy, is that an illusion. David was talking about little kids. You haven't seen anything yet. Your two-year-old has this thought process that what I have is mine and what you have is mine. Right? If you have a two-year-old, you all know what I'm talking about. They think erroneously, life is all about them and they're all in control. And you know what? Life continues on and shatters that illusion. <laughs> it is not true at all. And the older you get, the more you realize the only one in control here is God because I'm in control of nothing. I'm just happy if I have a warm meal anymore. You know what I mean? Just, just life sometimes feels so out of control 
Uh, you know, and that, 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 that we have to go back and say, God, you're sovereign. You are the only one in control. So what's our response to all this talk on sovereignty? What should be our takeaway? It's this. Listen, this is what I want you to take away today. What is the sovereignty of God? What should it produce in me? Well, first of all, you bow before your king. You acknowledge he's the sovereign one. Amen? You bow before him. You believe with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. You believe that he is in control. That he is overall and you know what you do then you behold him you worship him in awe you worship the greatness the largeness the sufficiency of god sovereignty would be super scary it would be super scary as a concept if it wasn't coupled with this idea that we talked about last week that we serve a good good father can you imagine a sovereign person who's evil we call those dictatorships. We call those evil realms, right? Evil kings. But our God is a good, good father. Our God loves us unconditionally. You couple those kind of concepts of God with this understanding that he's sovereign, and I tell you what, it's a win-win deal. You want a sovereign God who's a good, good father. You want a sovereign God who's loving you unconditionally. You want a, a sovereign God who loves you so much he's willing to send his son to die for you. Sovereignty is a good thing. And sometimes I don't think we see it that way. Sometimes I think it scares us because we think we're not in control. Well, I want to tell you something. You're not in control anyway. So at least we have someone who's in control over us that's a good, good father, and he's a loving father. Amen? Amen. 